Hello and welcome to A History of Hannibal, episode 43, Frustration. I'm back. It's been a while since we had a regular Hannibal episode, so let's just get into it, shall we? Well, where were we when we left off a month ago? It is 216 BC. Margot is in Carthage, collecting reinforcements for Hannibal, who is in Italy and has just taken Capua. While in Rome, the dictator, Marcus Junius Pera, has gathered together a 25,000-strong force, and is leading them out. We shall today start our story with Hannibal. Everybody ready? Let's do this thing. Hannibal made a move from Capua, and tried to take Naples a second time. Remember how he found himself unable to take the city before, and instead went after Capua? This attempt proved uh, just as futile as the first, and he moved on, instead to the town of Nola. He hoped that the town would come over, and so approach them in a friendly manner. The city was divided. The Senate wanted to remain loyal to Rome, while the people wanted to join Hannibal, not wanting to endure the horror of a siege and to see their crops burn. The Senate didn't want to outright refuse the people, because then the people would just ignore them, and they would be made redundant. Instead, they acted like they agreed to buy time. The reason for the delay was that they couldn't work out what the terms with Hannibal should be. Yes, that's a very good excuse. We'll use that one. They thus sent representatives to the praetor, Marcellus, who we have met before, presently located at Casilinum. He sent the messengers back praising the senators, asking them to continue their ruse and not to speak of their message to him. Meanwhile, Marcellus made his way to Nola. As soon as he arrived, Hannibal was scared away, and he went back to Naples, before realising again that he was not able to take it, and so he moved on to Nucaria. He besieged the town and made overtures. They were very reluctant to surrender, but were forced into it by hunger. Hannibal, again wanting to be the nice guy compared to Rome, offered rich rewards to anyone who would stay in the settlement and join his army. Not one Nucarian took the bait. They all left. Once again, see Hannibal underestimating the sense of loyalty to Rome that was ingrained into the Italian population. Hannibal sacked Nucaria and moved back to Canae. All the while, Marcellus maintained a nervy control over Nola. One local in particular, a man named Lucius Bantius, was seriously contemplating betraying the town to Hannibal. Bantius had been found half-dead after Canae, and Hannibal found him, took him in, helped him recover, and sent him home. Marcellus handled the affair very well, and managed to win the troubled Bantius over to his side through generosity. With him won over, Bantius became Rome's staunchest defender in Nola. Hannibal now moved back to Nola, and Marcellus withdrew his troops from their camp outside the town to the walls within. He wasn't afraid of the Carthaginians, but determined not to let the anxious citizens defect. 
the two armies prepared outside the walls and the camps, when one day the town senators warned Marcellus that the citizens were having talks with the Carthaginians by night, that when the Romans marched out of the walls, it had been arranged for them to steal the Roman possessions and lock the doors behind them. Then, finally, they could hand the town over to the Carthaginians. He therefore decided to finally act, after lots of small skirmishes, rather than let the loyalty of the inhabitants slip further away. The Roman units were placed by the gates, and the citizens were kept well away. Hannibal's force was in battle positions, as they had been for some days. He was very confused as to why Marcellus wasn't doing anything. As the Romans didn't come out and weren't posted on the walls, he concluded that Marcellus had discovered the talks and was shying away from action. So, he sent a portion of his force back to the camp to get the equipment for a frontal assault on the town. As they gathered the materials together, and the main line began to move forward, the Romans stormed out of the centre gate, flooding towards the Carthaginians. Hannibal's censor fell back from the shock of the attack. At that very moment, troops from the side gates had joined the main force and hit the Carthaginians on the wings. The Carthaginians retreated, soundly defeated. Livy mentions the figures of earlier historians, 2,800 Carthaginian dead to 500 Romans, but he considers this an exaggeration. It is not very often that ancient sources speak of exaggeration, so almost certainly less Carthaginians than this were killed. But it was a victory for the Romans, one that came only a few months after Cannae, and when Hannibal was at his most powerful and intimidating. It was truly a great achievement by Marcellus, one of Rome's heroes of the Second Punic War although he has often been overshadowed by Fabius Maximus and Scipio Africanus. Hannibal gave up control of Nola and moved to Acarai, while Marcellus held an inquiry to discover the traitors who had been holding secret talks with the enemy. Seventy men were executed. The town was placed in control of the loyal senate, while Marcellus moved to Tsuasula. Hannibal tried to take Acarai through friendly manners, as was fast becoming his custom. But, as was equally becoming custom, the citizens refused to hand over the town. Hannibal began planning an assault, and the town soon despaired. They had nowhere near the resources to match Hannibal. This didn't mean surrender, by no means. They simply slipped out of the city at night, and fled to nearby settlements they knew to be steadfastly pro-Roman. The town was sacked, and Hannibal moved on to Casilinum, where word reached him that Marcus Junius Pera, the dictator, was arriving with his army. Hannibal was greatly worried, fearing that this new army would cause Capua to defect back to Rome. The force which had been gathered at Casilinum since Cannae was very anxious, particularly about the Campanians betraying them. This fear seems to be confirmed, 
as word came that Capua was about to break into a revolt. They nipped this problem in the bud. Not as they had done it at Nola, by closely watching the citizens, but instead killing them all. Both sides would be brutal in this war. The defenders were reasonably pleased by the size of their force, about 570 men, feeling that the town could be protected. They were a bit short on food, though. Hannibal asked them for terms, sending a force under Isalcas, but he found the walls abandoned and thought that the town was empty and ready for the taking. He prepared for an assault, when two cohorts darted out of the gates and destroyed the force. Marhabal was sent forward with a larger force, which was reinforced by elephants, those which Margot had managed to get sent, and forced the Romans back into the town, and Hannibal planned to make an assault the next day. The Carthaginians worked hard, but so did the Romans. Hannibal didn't make any immediate progress, and abandoned the siege, though he made sure to fortify his camp to make it appear like he was going to return. He now moved his troops back to Capua for the winter. Livy, ever the moralizer, suggests that this may have been a bigger mistake than not taking Rome immediately after Cannae. The theory goes that by wintering in Capua, a soft and decadent place, his army was corrupted and became debauched. This weakening of the army cost Hannibal the war. Should we believe this? Nah. Think Augustan morality legislation, and this passage makes perfect sense. The idea of an army being spoiled is an old one, and appears in many times and places. The first example that springs to mind when writing is the armies of the First Crusade, supposedly spoiled by wintering in Acre. Reading the two accounts is a very similar experience. Polybius, much more reliable in this instance, says instead that the men were kept in open camps throughout the winter. So, right now I'm confused by the timing of everything. My edition of Livy states that we're still in 216 BC, and later in the text Livy refers to things happening still in 216 BC, but right here, book 23, chapter 19, he says... With the warmer weather towards the end of winter, Hannibal returned from Capua to Castellinum. This, to me, sounds a lot like spring. The only thing that makes any sense to me is that Livy is talking about January and February of 215 BC, before the religious year ended at the end of February, beginning of March, but when the days were getting longer, and that this is just an error on the part of Penguin. Or maybe I've got this completely backwards and we're still in 216 BC. But at least for the moment, I'm going to tell the story as though we're in the beginning of 215 BC. Not that this makes much difference to the story. But just think that for the first time since, I don't know, episode 32, we're out of 216 BC. 
That's about four months of storytelling in which we've covered a year. Good grief, I move slowly. Anywho, let's move on. Giving up on a direct assault, Hannibal besieged Casilinum, the town being guarded from a nearby camp by one Tiberius Sempronius Gracchus. Pera had gone back to Rome for religious reasons. Marcellus in Nola wanted to help, but was prevented as the river running next to Casilinum was flooded. The people trapped in the town were starving. But Gracchus's orders from Pera were not to do anything. Gracchus here had a brilliant idea. He couldn't go and bring food into the town without provoking an attack, so instead he put grain in jars and floated it downstream for the wasting, hungry soldiers. He managed to do this for two more nights, before heavy rains sent the jars past the town to the enemy camp. Things were getting desperate in the town. The people ate the leather from their shields, mice, and any roots they could find. Eventually, Hannibal, being impatient, gave up his attempts to take the town by force and negotiated a ransom for seven-twelfths of a pound of gold per head. By this point, the force of 570, who had been guarding the settlement, had been halved by starvation, and there is some disagreement over what happened. The men were either allowed to go to the coastal town of Kumai, or they were killed as soon as they left the settlement. Livy states the second to be more likely, but to me this seems like a harsh treatment of the Carthaginians by Romans, and the first the more likely. Either way, the town was taken, and a force of about 700 was placed in the town. The town from which the Roman troops came from, the Allies' town of Praeneste, was richly rewarded. The pay of the soldiers there was doubled, and the town was exempt from military service for the next five years. This is a convenient place to end today's episode. Next week, we'll mop up in Italy in 216 BC, the year of Hannibal's greatest victory, Cnae, the year Capua came over to him, and the year that began his greatest problem, Italian towns that didn't want to join him. It may seem like we haven't covered anything really noteworthy today, but that isn't true. What we've seen is the development of Hannibal's frustration at his inability to outright take Italian towns. How many times has he moved against Naples only to realise, oh right, I can't take that? Both for a mixture of PR and manpower reasons. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please check us out at all the usual places online. I won't bore you today by listing them. Now, rather than end the episode here, I'd like to include the opening minutes of my new podcast, The Arab Spring, A History, which launched a few days ago. I hope you like it. If you do, be sure to subscribe to that new feed on iTunes, or however you listen to the show. And please leave a very nice review on iTunes, or however you listen to the show. 
The iTunes charts are greatly affected by reviews, particularly written ones. And the best way to get this out there is to push it up the charts. So if you could leave a nice review, I would really, really appreciate it. So, enjoy the preview, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Arab Spring, a history. Episode 1, Introduction. I am Jamie Redfern, and shall be your host for this series. On the 17th of December, 2010, a Tunisian street vendor set himself on fire in protest at President Ben Ali's corrupt and oppressive government. Within a month, Ben Ali had stepped down after 23 years in power. Protests spread across the region like wildfire. By the time of writing, the summer of 2013, Libya, Egypt and Yemen have overthrown their governments. Reforms have taken place in Morocco, Jordan, Kuwait, Bahrain and Oman. There have been major protests in Algeria, Lebanon, Iraq and civil war is raging in Syria. Just how did this happen? That is what this series will strive to find out. This podcast is going to be a history of the Middle East from about the year 1900 through to the present day. We will cover the story of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the birth of the Iranian Pahlavi dynasty in the era of World War I and follow Turkey, Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Iran, the Gulf States, Libya, Israel and Tunisia through these years as they follow their own divergent paths. It is one of the most thrilling eras in history, and one that is crucial to understanding the way the world is today. We'll cover the figures who defined the era. Ataturk, Reza Shah, Mossadegh, Nasser, Ayatollah Khomeini, Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, among many others. We'll look at the great revolutions, such as the birth of Turkey, the Islamic Revolution, and of course, the Arab Spring. We're going to look at the Ba'ath Party, the PLO, and the Arab-Israeli conflict, Al-Qaeda, the rise and fall of Dubai, the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. We're going to get not only into political history, but military, economic and social history, not to mention many digressions along the way. Don't be scared if you think you know nothing about the period. This podcast is going to be very accessible. Some of you may be familiar with my other podcasts, A History of Alexander and A History of Hannibal and the Punic Wars. Both focus on ancient military history and revel in the details of the topic. This isn't going to be like that. It's going to be much more of an overview than an in-depth study. Let me take you to the year 1900. The Mediterranean world of 1900 was a mirror image of the world in 900. 
the Middle Ages saw a frankly unimpressive European civilization facing the far more advanced civilization of Islam. The Caliphate stretched 4,000 miles from Spain to China. Huge advances were being made in medicine, astronomy, and above all, mathematics. A scholar living in Baghdad or Cairo would, understandably, have little interest in the brutish civilization on the far side of the Dardanelles. For those of you not familiar with the term, the Dardanelles are the piece of water between Europe and Asia, in Turkey, where the modern city of Istanbul is located. The petty kings fighting for the ruins of the Roman Empire were nothing compared to the Middle East or China. Angkor Wat in Cambodia, constructed in the 12th century, is a far more impressive structure than anything being done in the West. Yet, the infighting in Europe would cause competition, and a strong force would emerge from it. Europe exploded onto the world stage in the 15th and 16th centuries, and very soon would be considered the most powerful civilization on the planet. In these years, another power was forming near the West, that of the Ottomans. The Ottoman Turks expanded from a heartland in modern Turkey in the 1300s to conquer the entire Middle East by 1600. It seemed as though the Ottomans would continue to advance along with Western Europe. But this was not to be. By 1900, the two great Muslim states, the Ottoman Empire and Persia, were shadows of their former selves. Just how on earth did this happen? Well, there are four reasons. 1. Ottoman institutions were not well suited for change. For example, the Janissaries. The Janissaries were the elite Ottoman troops, children taken from Christian families and raised as Muslims. Allah.